Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's a Saturday afternoon, and a group of kids is learning Cambodian music at this cultural center in Fresno. Setan Nim is counting from one to three to help the kids follow the rhythm. This is a weekly class on Cambodian language and music, and it's taught by the United Khmer Cultural Preservation Club. Eight-year-old Nadine Dove says her grandma wanted her to take the class. I started practicing before it with Yeye when we go, but I, I knew a little bit before we came. And now she can count to 100 in Khmer. Moi, Bi, Bei, Bun, Bram. Nadine's grandma, Chun Gov, hopes the class will ground Nadine in her culture and inspire her to want to preserve it. I bring my grandchildren come to learn about culture, so I don't want to forget Cambodian culture, and I like my culture a lot. I'm Sasha Koka, and today on the California Report magazine, we're going to head to Fresno, home to the fifth largest Cambodian-American community here in California. This cultural kids program is one of many ways the Cambodian community is working to protect the next generation from the collective trauma of a brutal genocide that killed some two million people back in the 1970s. While one person in 10 may be a physical casualty of the war, four people out of 10 have been rendered homeless. Many refugees fled the horror of the Khmer Rouge during Pol Pot's regime. And those who survived, including those who came here to California, often passed that trauma down to their kids. Sarith Hawk from KVPR, Valley Public Radio, is going to introduce us to one Fresno family working to heal from that experience. And just a heads up, this story talks directly about suicide. I'm at Fresno's largest Cambodian Buddhist temple for the inauguration of the new abbot. Chants, prayers, and blessings begin a three-day ceremony to welcome him. This was where I first met 36-year-old Nancy Meese, who helped to organize the event. She likes to volunteer at the temple and is often one of the youngest participants here. Even though, like, I'm American-born, but I, I feel like, you know, to make my ancestors proud, to make my parents and family proud, I have to carry on the tradition. Nancy was born and raised in Fresno to parents who fled the Khmer Rouge. She says her culture was almost stamped out by the genocide and mass migration. But it's these kinds of communal events that keep them whole. 
She has lots of memories at this temple where her grandmother was a Buddhist nun. I remember dropping my grandma off. She would come here and teach me how to like, you know, the Buddhist way of living. Nancy often brings food to the monks, one of whom is her father, Kongmis. He moved here to carry on the family's tradition of service a few years after his mother's death in 2012. On this hot and humid afternoon, the 76-year-old begins one of his favorite duties at the temple, watering the plants and vegetables. The peaceful atmosphere is a sharp contrast to what Kong and his family endured to get here. Like many Cambodian families in the U.S. today, the Mies family arrived as refugees. When the Khmer Rouge marched victoriously into Phnom Penh, no one knew how they would rule Cambodia. The country's borders were quickly sealed. In time, Kong remembers the brutal working conditions under the regime. There wasn't enough food, and many people starved to death. You come to Tuka, Mangai Mangai, Mutangai Mutangai, we are bought one of his children died from starvation, and his older brother was executed by Khmer Rouge soldiers. He never knew what happened to him. Nancy only knows the broad strokes of what her parents endured. In 1979, when the regime fell, they, like thousands of others, fled to Thailand. While they waited for exit visas, Nancy's father risked his life to help other people sneak into their camp, Kawidang. It was the main place people could get visas to immigrate. He brought as many families as he can, possibly can. I'm talking about hundreds of families. <laughs> Kong Mies recalled how risky the missions were. They had to travel at night. Many of those he helped were living in other refugee camps. They were weak, sick, and desperate to get into Kawidang for the chance to leave that nightmare. Kong went out every night, guiding those who had lost their way. Thieves regularly searched travelers for hidden jewelry, and armed guards prowled the jungle paths. For Kong, the risks were worth it. He and his family eventually received a visa for the United States and emigrated to Fresno. They arrived in 1984. Nancy was born two years later. More than 40 years after the genocide, Nancy knows her parents suffer from the trauma of what they witnessed. But they don't talk much about the details. And even if they were willing to talk about what they went through, Nancy might not understand them. It's broken. English, broken Khmer, all mixed up. And so, like, there's a lot of miscommunication. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it could be quite a, a lot of work, actually. Nancy says her parents didn't understand the way their kids dressed or acted once they moved to Fresno. 
They had grown up in a more reserved society. It's hard to understand their parents, where they came from, and so that causes a lot of, you know, it's just a culture clash. After resettling in the U.S., her parents were busy adjusting to a foreign country and finding work. They didn't have a lot of spare time to spend with their kids, and they lived in a low-income neighborhood, all they could afford. I just feel like there is a huge gap in so many levels for our community. Like, we didn't have the right resources, or if there was really any resource, you know, healthcare, education, it was just so hard for it to be accessible for our community. The Mies family survived a genocide, but they couldn't escape more tragedy in the U.S. Nancy is one of eight kids. Only five are still alive today. One child died during the genocide. Fresno claimed two more. Nancy's sister, Kania, died by suicide in 2010. She was only 25. We, we didn't expect it to happen, you know. Um, my sister was a very bubbly person, loving, caring, kind. Kania was only a year older than Nancy, and they were close. It was just so hurtful that she couldn't at least share what was going inside, what was bothering her, because we were like best friends. Kania had been struggling with depression for months, but it was taboo in their family to talk about it. You have to, you know, be happy and move forward. And they would always tell me, you know, the kids back in Cambodia have it much worse than, than us. You know, we are blessed to be here in America. Nancy knows this is how her parents learned to cope with all they suffered, but she wonders about the impact it had on her sister's mental health. I felt like they were dismissing what we felt internally. And because of that, not, not wanting to blame them, but I feel in a sense, that's the reason why my sister hid everything inside and didn't dare to let anything out. And she dealt with it by herself. Nancy just wishes Kania had confided in her. I, it took a toll on me where I felt like I failed to be a sister. Like, how could I let that happen? Nancy says the environment they grew up in didn't help. Their southeast Fresno neighborhood had gangs, and her brothers got involved. And it was a way for them to protect themselves from being bullied by other you know, ethnic groups. Because of his gang connections, one of her brothers was deported to Cambodia. He doesn't even know Cambodia. He doesn't know the culture, and he can barely speak the language. Just after he was detained, Nancy's sister Kania died by suicide. He was in shackles when he attended Kania's viewing. He wasn't even allowed to stay for the funeral. He took it really hard. Um, he was able to go to her viewing for like literally 30 minutes. And it, it broke my heart to see him drop down to his knees and, you know, just fall. Rocked by these losses, Nancy planned a trip to Cambodia the following year. She wanted to visit sacred religious sites, check on her brother, and ground herself. While there, she experienced something profound, what she calls an awakening. I completely changed. I just completely, like, prioritized my life and filter out what wasn't important, what was. She felt spiritually connected to the world, able to accept what had happened. And when she returned to Fresno, she saw it as her duty to help her family heal from their losses. I felt like I... I had a huge role in 
bringing the family together in a sense spiritually. And if I don't do that, I feel like we're going to fall apart again. Her faith was put to the test once again. Just a few years ago, Nancy's oldest sister died from complications related to alcohol. Nancy says drinking was her way of coping with Kania's death. Sometimes it all feels too much for Nancy to carry. I'm the young one in the family, and I just like, why is it a responsibility for me to be that glue in the family? Throughout her grief and loss, Nancy has turned to her religion and culture for comfort. She did see a therapist when Kania died, but didn't find it very helpful. She says if the care was more geared towards Cambodians, it might have been different. There is a model for that type of culturally responsive care in Fresno already. Zhe Vang is the clinical director at the Fresno Center, whose mission is to offer health and immigration services to the Southeast Asian community. So we have our men's group, our young men's group, our elderly women's group. Right now, they predominantly serve Hmong patients. But Vang says Cambodian Americans could benefit too. The Fresno Center's success with the Hmong community started with destigmatizing mental health. Generation after generation been told them that if you have mental health, you're actually crazy, but really you're not. Dr. Gia Zhang is a clinical psychologist and program director here. He says people were turned off by terms like mental health or clinic. And we actually have a lot of the ladies to kind of just kind of test this out with their husband and say, you know, when he asks you where you're going, you just say, I'm going to go to the happy house rather than going seek mental health, right? It's a better, positive turn. Here, people can get culturally appropriate care in their own language. A must, says Vang. When when you provide mental health services with the interpreter, it completely changed the context of therapy because then you have to translate what the client is saying to the interpreter, then the interpreter translated to you. You lose all the emotions. She says sessions with elders in the community are very different from a Western approach to therapy. They don't take kindly to direct questions. It's almost like a dance. You know, they come in, we have to talk about, so what did you do today? Those type of thing. And they're like, oh, nothing. And we have to kind of dance around what they do and, you know, how they're feeling, right? And then 10 minutes into the session, they finally say, oh, I feel really depressed. Vang started working with this program in 2019 and has seen it grow significantly. Although Vang and Zhang are both Hmong and specialize in treating Hmong patients, they say the intergenerational trauma and barriers to accessing care are similar across the Southeast Asian community. Sometimes the parents are just so busy making a living, you know, so busy with making sure that there's food on the table. You know, they don't have time for their kids. And so when they don't have time for their kids, and that oftentimes lead into, like, drugs. The parents and grandparents, survivors of war trauma, have a drive to survive. But the younger generation, born in the U.S., doesn't have that same focus. And that can lead to a culture clash, says Vang. They feel a sense of abandonment. There's really not a sense of belonging Um, with the family. There's no some sort of, like, relationship at all. To make up for that, children often try to find supportive relationships somewhere else, sometimes in gangs. Many also suffer from anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. But it's because the parents have their own traumas. And it could be the fact that, you know, they're just really depressed. They really know how to talk to them at all. And traumatized parents can create new trauma for their children. These are all things Nancy Meese experienced in her own family. That's why she often visits the temple, 
It's her tradition to go on a meditation walk each time. So each step that I take around the perimeter, you know, the shrine, I feel like it brings me more healing, brings more peace, more comfort. She makes sure to pass by the main pagoda and the prayer hall. If I don't take a look at it, it's, it's not, it's, I don't feel complete. And she often lingers at her favorite spot, the pond. I love seeing the lotus flowers. They sprout up from the green lily pads, tall, thin stalks blooming white and pink flowers. In order for it to become a beautiful flower, it has to go through mud and, you know, like all the dirt and challenges, the, the weather. They remind her of her own journey. But at the end of all the challenges and the winds and the storms, at the end, it blossoms, right? It blooms so beautifully. That story came to us from Valley Public Radio's Sarith Hawk. Sarith's reporting was supported by the Carter Center's Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism. By the way, if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. I mean, I think it's classic sort of hot, spicy, sweet, savory kind of a dish. And now let's head to Los Angeles, where we're going to meet two sisters who started a pop-up serving up Balinese food from their home kitchen. It's such a wonderful blend of sweet and spicy. It's delicious. And I just can feel the love that they pour into uh, making it. Claire Wiley is going to bring us the latest now in our series Flavor Profile, where we're featuring folks who pivoted to start food businesses during the pandemic. It's a hot Saturday afternoon on a leafy street in Glendale. It's quiet, except for a long line of people leading into one house. A sign on the driveway gate says 100% sold out. I'm at Bunkus Bagus, a Balinese food pop-up run by sisters Tara and Celine Carrara. Two big gold balloons in the shape of the letter B float above the driveway. Today is the pop-up's third anniversary. Did you want to buy one? Yes. Tara is standing behind a little booth, greeting excited customers and handing over their orders in big paper bags. I'm quite familiar with the taste because I'm actually from Malaysia and, you know, Bali is over nearby, and we sort of share a same taste profile in our food. So when I found out that they were doing this during pandemic, I was like, oh, wow, like, you know, it gives a sense of food, uh, a sense of home. Very vibrant and sweet and, like, tropical. Plus, I love the fact that it's wrapped in banana leaves and you can sort of, like, have your plate eat it, too. Inside the house, Tara's sister Celine has a meal prepping production line laid out on the dining room table. She flattens a banana leaf, and in the middle, she spoons on fragrant rice. The like key part of a bunkus, in my opinion, that you have to nail is the rice. Like, if you can't make 
delicious, yummy white rice. Why bother? She then circles the rice with three dishes, slow-cooked coconut chicken curry, sweet, spicy tempeh, and long beans with bean sprouts. It's all topped with a tamari marinated egg, Bali-style salted peanuts, dried pork garnish, toasted coconut, and the sister's own house-made sambal goreng, a spicy, crunchy topping of fried shallot, garlic, and chili. And if you're really good at doing origami, you'd be really good at folding the bunkus. This is the sister's signature dish, nasi bunkus, which means rice to go or rice package. It's a typical Indonesian lunch. In Bali, there is a very intentional effort to make everything beautiful. I really wanted the colors to be balanced all the way across. So if you're imagining the bunkus like a clock, there's balance around the clock itself. Tara was formerly a makeup artist. She brings her aesthetic flair to every bunkus bagus dish, especially their signature dessert, kue lapis. All of our dishes are colorful and dense. So like with the kue lapis, it's all of those things coming together to make this like rainbow. And so everything's like a little bit unbelievable when you see it, which I think is a very Bali thing. There's this whimsy to things there. The kue lapis is a cake made from rice flour, tapioca flour, and coconut milk. It's layered, with each level dyed a bright color. So it's a tactile, silly, wacky, fun dessert. And we call it like the sticky hand of desserts because you can literally like fling it around like a sticky hand (laughs) or like stick it on your face. It's popular with children for that reason, but also with us because we are children (laughs) at heart. Tara and Celine grew up in Bali. Their family would gather around the table to share big feasts, tucking into six or seven dishes at a time. I've definitely been on a personal quest since I was young to figure out how to replicate the recipes that we were eating in Bali here because I'd miss it. Getting a sense of what textures should look like when, you know, the amounts of ginger that go in one dish are are measured in knuckle lengths, not like by gram. They both love cooking, but never planned to make food their business. Then COVID hit and they lost their jobs. Tara as a makeup artist and Celine as a doula. They began batting around the idea of a pop-up. With our free time, we just started exploring different markets in LA and trying to look for the right ingredients to make Balinese food. They would go on these adventures through quiet pandemic-era Los Angeles. They found galangal and lemongrass in a Thai town market, stumbled across long beans and canned jackfruit in a Chinatown warehouse store. On the shelves of a corner store in West Covina, they discovered toasted coconut and crunchy soybean chips. And during a trip to their local Mexican supermarket to stock up on tortillas and toilet paper, Celine spotted banana leaves. And once we found the leaves, we were like, oh, we could wrap it. That's when the idea for Bunkos Bagus came together. It means good package. The sisters hosted their first pop-up from their house in July 2020. Before we knew it, we had, what, like 200 meals getting pre-ordered and we're running it all out of the house and it became insanity. Everyone was stuck at home and I think really craving an opportunity to get out and be in community. And I think that that really helped us get our foot off the ground because the concept has always really been about connecting with people and sharing this amazing place that we grew up through the food. 
But that's not to say things were easy. In the beginning, they didn't know if the pop-up had a future. They had no experience running a food business. It was hard managing their time in the kitchen and balancing that with serving customers. They were initially making overly complicated dishes in their small home kitchen. This was the first summer of the pandemic. Things were really unstable. So everything felt really challenging because we were learning so much so quickly and then also having to problem solve on the fly all the time. That pace, like we weren't sure if we could keep it up. Gradually, though, the sisters did find balance. They narrowed the menu to focus on the bunkus. They figured out a system where customers pre-ordered food on a Monday, so the sisters had the cash to go and buy groceries for the following weekend's pop-up. We've always just been two peas in a pod. There's been an ease to our relationship and a fullness to it. Running a business together, even living under the same roof for the first nine months of lockdown, was actually easier because they're family. There isn't a day where we aren't like laughing hysterically or making jokes or complaining and just being free to like vent when we need to. Over the past three years, Tara and Celine figure they've made over 10,000 nasi bunkus at over 100 events. They knew they wanted to keep working together and keep connecting people to their roots in Bali, but they were ready for something new. They considered opening a brick and mortar restaurant. We just had to really ask ourselves, like, is this what we really want? Do we want to be working every weekend and having a lot of debt owed? So instead, the Carraras are now focusing on their condiment, sambal goreng, that crunchy topping of fried shallots, chili, and garlic. To make it happen, they're working out of a busy commercial kitchen in LA's Arts District. Celine used to have to chop every shallot by hand. Now she's feeding them into an industrial-sized blitzer. So right now I'm just dropping in the raw shallots and garlic into the hot oil at about 315 degrees Fahrenheit. It's really hot over here. Over by the stove, Tara is manning three huge pans of oil. The joke is that I'm the SpongeBob of the team because I am the fry cook. We used to fry this over two walks outside at our house over like um, like an outdoor propane flame. And it, would just, it took so long. These days, they can go from raw ingredients to 500 labeled jars in one day. That's five times what they could make at home. The condiment is now available in almost 50 retailers across the country. It can be used on everything from pizza and ramen to burgers and salad. So... You know, you could be living in Lincoln, Nebraska and buy a jar of sambal goreng and now have one of the flavors of Bali in your own home. At the moment, Celine and Tara are taking the occasional makeup gig or doula work to supplement their income. But the business is demanding more of their attention and the aim is to make it their full-time jobs. What makes me feel so fulfilled is that Bunkus Bagus is a project that's about our sisterhood and our origin story as sisters. We both feel that we can really do anything when we are working alongside one another. We want Bunkus Bagus to be around for the long haul.
Claire Wiley brought us that story as part of our series Flavor Profile, where we're featuring folks who pivoted to start food businesses during the pandemic. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director with big help this week from Izzy Bloom and Jessica Carissa. Brendan Willard is our engineer. And I'm Sasha Coca. You can catch all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.